Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. few things we want to point out here as we look at these 144,000, which we'll say more about when we get to chapter 14. Um, but there's some things that we've already mentioned I think are, are definitely to be part of the message tonight. And that is, and I think as far as a practical application, as even before the Lord's coming and even before uh, the tribulation period on this earth, in our time of peril, because I do believe we are in spiritually perilous times, Again, I think it's needful to kind of slow down and see this. We'll turn in just a moment to demonstrate this again. We've looked at this recently. But if we're not careful, as God's people, we can, the devil, Satan, our adversary, accuses the Lord of being unfaithful to his word because of the circumstances that we experience on earth. So we must understand that's no indication of the unfaithfulness of God. And, and it's no indication of the absence of his love or of his faithfulness. What you're seeing here is in the midst of the tribulation, the opening of these seven seals, God has some servants on earth. He does not remove them from the trouble. These 144,000 are not raptured out. They're left here, but they are marked to be distinguished from everybody else that's on the earth and to preserve them as his own. You remember there's another mark coming in chapter 13. That's the mark of the beast. These have been marked by the Lord before the mark of the beast ever shows up. They have been set apart as his own. We'll say some more about that seal in just a minute. But we are prone. I was having some instruction today. I'm doing some training for something I'm, I'm, I'm volunteering in. And they're talking about how the brain develops and how when a child is little, if it experiences trauma, that programs into the brain. So they begin to look at in the entirety of their world through their personal experience in their home. Your view of the world will be formed within the first few years of your life by the experiences in a home. And it explains a lot of things about why certain people have certain tendencies in their life because that's the way they view the world. Now, that's human. Now, the grace of God is capable of overcoming the natural consequences of the world we live in. But if I tell you one of the things you'll, you'll find, you find people that have been brought up in, in, in terrible home situations, they end up getting a very cynical view. One of the things we find with people that have been in and out of the justice system is they don't trust anybody. I mean, it's, that's, the, that's the code they live by. We don't trust. It's one of the reasons it's challenging to get them to believe the gospel because, as you know, it requires trust to be saved. Now, you see Satan behind that? Satan promotes sin to get us to think that God is not involved in our circumstances. And I don't want to miss this tonight. I believe the Lord continues to direct us here this evening that you and I need to realize that no matter how bad things get around us, that is no indicator of who God is. We don't judge God by our world and, its, and, the, and the effects of sin. That's in place because of the curse of sin, but where sin did abound... Grace did much more abound. Let's look very quickly at Romans 8 while we're on this introductory theme as we come into chapter 7, being reminded that the faithfulness of God is not perceived through the absence of trouble on earth. In fact, many times that's the very indicator of his faithfulness. 
God has to deal with sin. If he negated the consequences of sin, he would not be just. But in the midst of a world that's under the curse of sin, God has called out through the gospel servants unto himself. Romans chapter 8, I love these verses. I think the longer I'm saved, the more they mean to me. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Well-known verses are often quoted uh, to, to secure our hearts in the assurance of salvation as they should be. But notice this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's not talking about the great tribulation, that's talking about trouble in this life. Okay, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we've stated this before, but I'll state it again. That means the presence of these things that are listed, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, the presence of those things does not mean the absence of the love of God. We must have that established in our hearts and our minds. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 very quickly, if you would. Hebrews chapter 11. What we're seeing in the midst of God beginning to pour out His wrath on earth, yet in wrath, as it says in Habakkuk 3, 2, He remembers mercy. In the midst of His wrath on earth, there are servants of His there, and they are under the merciful hand of God. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, in Hebrews 11, we have all these tremendous stories of people who by faith... Uh, Abel, you know, by faith, believed God, and being dead yet speaketh. And Enoch was translated, and Noah built an ark, and Rahab spared the spies, and she was saved by faith. And all those tremendous accounts. And then toward the end, the Bible says, in uh, verse 32, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith, Subdued kingdoms. Now that sounds like something I want to do by faith, right? Subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, as did Daniel, quenched the violence of fire. That'd be the three Hebrew children. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. But then it goes on to say this, and others were... Tortured? Why weren't they delivered? Because that was not what God's will was. Their others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. You see, it takes faith to conquer kingdoms. It takes faith to shut the mouths of lions. It also takes faith to be eaten by a lion, if that's God's will. Amen? It's, what, it's the faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, 
Meaning we know he's able, but it may not be his will. It may be God, God may have a wisdom that will get more glory for himself if we're burned than if we're spared. Church, this is the kind of faith we need. And I believe you say, does this have anything to do with Revelation 6 and 7? Yes. May, may you know this very clear. You're going to have some people teach you that people are saved by faith and works at sometimes, works at other times. No, 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 no. God's plan is by faith. Hebrews 11 establishes that clear. Whether it was Abel or Noah, uh, someone say, well, by faith, Noah built an ark. That's right. By what? Faith. His works demonstrated his faith. The Ninevites were not saved by works. They weren't saved by a work of repentance. The Bible says they believed God. And then, of course, they, because they believed God, they showed forth the, the belief in God through repentance and the works that they demonstrated. Don't let me deceive you tonight. Our part is faith. And in this chapter, chapter 7, you have 144,000 who are going to be sealed by God with an angel who will seal them in their foreheads. Make no mistake, they are servants of God by faith. And we must understand, faith does not predetermine what God must do in order to get glory for himself. Faith says this, whatever God does, he's right. That's faith. Whatever God does, he's right. If God delivers us from the fire, he's right. If God sees fit to let us die in the fire, he's right. What we've decided is we'll trust his judgment with our lives. We'll trust him to... Have you ever wondered why Paul... I mean, time and again, the Bible says God delivered Paul out of one trouble after another. He didn't deliver him out of the trouble of the sword in Rome because it was time for... Paul said, the time of my departure is that... Hand. Paul lived by faith, and then Paul died by faith. And we need to do the same thing. And I believe that message should be seen here. While all of these horrid things are beginning to open up on earth, what's true is that God is the same. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this earth. His perfectly sinless life and his sacrificial death point to this, that God is trustworthy. The Lord Jesus said, Into thine hands I commit my spirit. When he died, he gave up the ghost, trusting the God the Father to raise him up from the dead. Of course he did. He raised himself from the dead, raised by the Spirit of God. My point is this tonight. This is a reminder to us that our circumstances are no indication of the character of God. In fact, they actually are. God must deal with sin. We see in Psalm 107 that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. He'll turn a land that is fer fertile into a dry, barren wilderness. We often, we, want, we only see the hand of God in the things that bless us, but we must understand God is faithful when we're dry and when we're hungry and when we're thirsty, when we have plenty and when we're without. God is faithful. His love is the same. And so may we never judge God by what's going on around us. I believe one of the false appetites for so-called revival in our country is an appetite to bypass some of the things we got coming our way. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wrong appetite that says we want a shortcut to God's blessings and it's not healthy, it's not right if that's what we're talking about. Now, if we want God to get glory for his own good name to vindicate his word, which he'll always do, and we are jealous for the name of our Lord because he's our Savior, that's wonderful. But if it is, I don't want my circumstances turning sour, God, please intervene. 
No, no, faith carries us through the green pastures and the still waters and through the valley of the shadow of death. He's a good shepherd no matter where he's leading us, and I think we need to establish that tonight as we move into chapter 7. So as we look at the preservation of his servants, let's look more specifically at what's listed here in chapter 7. Verse 1, we see a pending move of judgment. Okay, there's a pending move of judgment under this, the preservation of his servants. That was our first point there. There's a pending move of judgment. It says, and after these things I saw four angels. So six seals have been opened. He said, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. We t touched it just briefly last week. It's, it's funny to me sometimes, some things I have to speak to because they become common enough in our hyper-religious world we have, there are those today that are just adamant that our earth is flat and there's four corners, it has to be flat. And again, without being too terribly unkind, say, come on, seriously? <laughs> four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. I think that's evident to see. The four winds of the earth are the same. Uh, the north, south, east, and the west. And these, we looked last week, the fact that God is in control of this. That's the more important truth here, is that the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he's in charge. So these four angels are standing here to stop that, that wind, the wind, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So they're going to stop all wind from blowing. The world's going to go stagnant. The earth is going to go stagnant with the winds not blowing, purging and purifying uh, I cannot imagine what the effect would be and what it's going to be when God stops the wind from blowing. Uh, I don't think we realize how purifying that is, that the wind should blow and God uses that to purify the air. And uh, God, our, our Lord is brilliant. We call up these little air purifiers. He has one called the wind, and I'm glad for it, amen? But there'll come a day when they're going to do this. But then, so that's the pending judgment. There's a move of pending judgment. But then we see in verses 2 and 3, there's a pleading messenger so there's four angels holding the four winds on the four corners of the earth. And he said, and I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Let me just mention this. You have to bear with me as I'm going to mention a number of things tonight. The Lord is a God of order. If you study your Bible, you'll find that God is a God of order. I've recently started going through the Gospels with the intent of studying the Lord Jesus Christ and His use of time, how the Lord Jesus used His time, how He managed His time. I never look at the Lord Jesus and think, wow, He should have written a manual on time management. But you know no one managed time more brilliantly than He did in 33 years, he proved himself sinlessly perfect, finished the work God the Father gave him to do, laid down his life, raised up from the dead. He finished his life's work in 33 years. 33 years, and I was just starting to get an idea of what I'm supposed to be doing, not finishing. <laughs> You're right? I mean, honestly. And our Lord came and did it perfectly. So I've studied it, and so I thought, I'm going to notice time. I'm just a few chapters into Matthew, and I realized that the first chapter of Matthew is a record of time. So it's a genealogy. God is a God of order. How many of us understand when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. 
we would consider ourselves what's called dispensationalist, meaning God has increments of time that he's dealing with men for a specific purpose in a specific way to accomplish a specific task. And you'll see that through Scripture that, that every segment of time ends with some kind of a major event. So the fall of man ended the period of innocence, right? Uh, we find that uh, we, we come up to the flood and there's a period there between, uh, uh, between the fall and, and, uh, uh, and the flood. We would consider that the dispensation of conscience, if you would. God dealing with man, establishing right and wrong and the consequences of sin. Then when you go from the flood, the next major event is Babel. You just go right on down the line. From Babel, you go to the, going, uh, the establishment of the nation of Israel and they go down into Egypt and then they come out through the Passover. And then you go from there, that's the period of law, all the way to Calvary's cross. And then we're going from Calvary's cross all the way to the tribulation period. But God incrementally, wisely, purposely dealing with man in order. That's why Genesis and Revelation are such tremendous bookends. They tell a whole story. Amen? I'm just trying to say this. When we study this, we ought to notice, as we study any text of Scripture, let's notice things about our Lord so we can recognize better His dealings in our life. God, God is not whimsical. He's not. There are those that would suggest that God is just operating on a whim. No, God has purposes and intentions that He has given us a free will to respond to Him, but God is still purposeful, intentional, wise in His dealings and orderly. The Bible says after this, there's about to be a judgment and God has already planned before these men implement the, this withholding of the wind and hurting of the earth, God knew what's going to happen once he hurts the earth and how people would respond. He said prior to that, we're going to seal the servants first. Then you can proceed. And so we find the pleading messenger saying not until the servants are sealed. And then we see in verses 4 through 8, the preserving mark. So we've had a pending move of judgment. A pleading messenger say, withhold the judgment until the servants are sealed. You know what that tells me? These are God's servants and he knows it. And he says, and I am looking out for the preservation of my own. It's, this is the same principle uh, that we find in John 10 that applies to us right now. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I said this recently. I think it was maybe Braden and I talking about it. Uh, Sunday in the jail got the question, can you lose your salvation? I explained it this way. I believe that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question typically asked from somebody who has the wrong idea about salvation. You can't get your salvation. You can't earn it, so you can't lose it. You can't keep it because you never got it, <laughs> except it was given you, right? Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able, that he is able. If you are preserving your soul, then you, can't, you can't keep your salvation. Would we agree? So it's not a question of can you lose your salvation. It's a question of can Christ lose those he saved. No, he cannot because he's faithful and true. And what we find out here is the character of God, though, though the dispensation of time has changed, the character of God is not. He's the same. He has servants on earth here. They're Jewish servants. These are, this is his fulfillment of his promise to the nation of Israel that though they turn their back on God for a time, yet... Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 27 tells us, yet when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, God's still going to preserve that nation and it'll be preserved through the gospel. Amen? 
And so we understand we're in a different period of time, but God's nature and God's character is the same. These are his servants, meaning they belong to him. They have been purchased with his price. They are his servants, and therefore, before the trouble gets any worse, I'm going to put my mark on them or my seal. How many of us remember the seal that was on the book? Seven of those seals on the book? Who was able to break the seal? Only Jesus. Only the Lamb. Now, are we not sealed to the day of redemption? Well, who can break the seal off of us? Only the one who put it on us. We're talking about a seal is a preserving mark placed on someone. And here the Bible says before the, he, the, this, this withholding of the wind, the hurting the earth, God says first to his angel, no, 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 we're going to seal my servants prior. And so then we read of that taking place. The Bible says in verse 3, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And again, I'll just reference it. We won't turn there. But the prayer in Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 3, 2, is to the Lord in wrath, remember mercy. What do we have? What's the last thing mentioned in Revelation 6? The wrath of the Lamb of God through the earthquake, correct? But what are we seeing exercised in chapter 7? Mercy, particularly mercy on the nation of Israel. You remember when God wanted to wipe out Israel and start over with Moses? I read about it this morning. It's in my daily Bible reading to Exodus 32. God will start over with you. And Moses said, pleads with the Lord. Lord, if you, if you can forgive them, then, then, then do. But if not, blot me out of your book. Don't blot them out. Why would Moses pray that? I mean, if I were Moses, I'd say, yes, please do. These people are wearing me out. I wonder if later he regretted asking the Lord to spare him because Moses is a type of Christ. And you know what? The emphasis in Revelation is on the wrath of God. But you know what you find in the midst of God's wrath? Mercy. Mercy toward his servants. Those who trust him will have mercy. Amen? And so what a wonderful truth. That God's character and nature is the same, uh, even though his dispensing to men may be different. In, he, in Revelation, he is not dispensing grace by and large. He's dispensing wrath. How I many you know in the Old Testament, he is by, by and large dispensing the law. He is laying down, this is the truth concerning what I require of you. But how many of you see the grace of God throughout the Old Testament? Rahab received grace from God. Psalm 107, we've been looking at it Sunday morning. It's a picture of God's loving kindness of his grace. God giving men what they don't deserve. So though the emphasis under the law is under the justice and righteousness of God, there's still grace. You know what some would have us to believe right now? We're living in the age of grace, and they would think that God checked his righteousness and law out. No, under grace, there's still a law, the law of righteousness, the law of justice and mercy and love is all still in place. Grace is there to facilitate it, not to cancel it. We must understand God is the same, and any dis dispensations don't change who God is. They just indicate how he's dealing with man at a particular time. Are we making sense tonight? Here in chapter 7, in wrath, he remembers mercy by sealing his servants. Now, what, no, what we notice uh, is a couple of things under the preserving mark is the reason, well, they're servants of God. They belong to him. So verse 3, he says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I'll note it again. He doesn't say remove them before the trouble, but mark them and preserve them. So instead of removing them from the trouble, we're going to prepare them for it. We're going to prepare them for going through it by, by marking them and sealing them. One may say, what is this seal in their foreheads? You ready? I don't know. It's a seal in their foreheads. All that stands out to me is it's here. It's not hidden somewhere. It is in plain view. 
what another reminder for us. God marks us as his own in such a way. Now, we're sealed, not with a mark on our forehead, but with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we are distinguished from everybody else on the earth. You know what a church is? It's a called out assembly, not a blended assembly. We are a peculiar people. We're to show forth the wonderful works of God. We are to be zealous of good works. And so we must understand they're marked on their foreheads. We're marked in our hearts. And I believe the mark on the forehead is having to do the Jews always required a sign. And God's going to put something that signifies these are mine. And so then... They, the reason for their mark, they belong to the Lord. They're his servants. The recipients, as we've already read, is 12,000 from every tribe. For those of you who are uh, familiar with your Bibles, you'll note that the, the listing of tribes is different than normal. Now, there's a missing tribe, and that is the tribe of Dan. Dan is missing here. And boy, I've puzzled over this, as have many others. Why does God remove Dan? Why did God allow an apostate to be an apostle? He has his reasons and there's wisdom in it. Some today debate over who's the 12th apostle, Matthias or Paul? Do we want to have this debate tonight? I have my opinions. I know Paul was an apostle. I know that. There's only 12 in the foundations of, of the new, new Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I agree. I believe the same thing. Some would argue. Matthias, you know what we have to come to at the end of the day? The Lord ultimately knows it all. There are some things, and I'm going to give you some thoughts on Dan, so I'm not going to leave you hanging. I believe there's some reasons why. I believe the emphasis in chapter 7 is on the faithfulness of God. He is faithful to preserve his servants. He is faithful to defend his own name. And he'll defend his own name by defending his own word. So we'll, we'll look at a few things in just a minute. Before we do that, let me just note this. Note the distinction between the seal of these servants and the seal of us. I, I alluded to it, but let's note the distinction. These 144,000 are sealed. It does, I, if you ask me, I don't believe the seal on the forehead is, is figurative. I believe it's a seal on the forehead. I believe it's, it's physical and visible, whereas we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This tells me something else. Who seals these servants, the Spirit of God or an angel? An angel does. The angel is going to go. He's the one that's, that's told to go seal these 144,000. He said, I heard the number of them which were sealed. But the back of that, it's another angel that's ascended out of the east. And he says, don't do this until I've sealed the servants of the living God until they've been sealed. And so we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We, we would believe, based on 2 Thessalonians, that upon the rapture of the church, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, though the, the Spirit of God, his eyes are in every place, but he is no longer indwelling believers like he is at this period of time. If you look in the Old Testament, there's one person in the Old Testament that ever says was filled with the Spirit. His name was Bezalel. Other than that, no person is recorded as having been filled with the Spirit. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and we know there was a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Spirit of God would indwell the believer in a different way than he did under the dispensation of the law. In John 7, he prophesied that out of our belly would flow rivers of living water. This spake he of those that believe on him. I do not believe, based on the record of the Bible, that Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit as we are today. Not in the same manner. We don't even find that in the Bible, uh, that it was in that manner. Nonetheless, he was present, working, and active, but not indwelling. And it seems to be the same here in the, in, in the tribulation period. These are not sealed with the Spirit. They are sealed on their forehead, meaning God's going to preserve them, but they're sealed in a different way. This just is another indicator God is dealing with man in a different manner at this time. 
And so he seals them on their forehead by an angel. We're sealed in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you want to write down in your notes, that's in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. We are sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says we are sealed by the Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says the New Testament saint uh, during this period of time is sealed by the Spirit. Here, the word seal is used. It carries the same idea. They are marked to be preserved by God as his own. But they're sealed by an angel, not by the Spirit. They're sealed in their forehead and not in their heart. And so then, we'll not go any further with that, but I think it's, it's worthy noting the distinction of the seal placed on these. Again, these are all Jews. We'll find out in chapter 14, they're all Jewish males, all 144,000. So this is not all that will be saved during the tribulation. These are uniquely set apart servants that are Israeli, they're Jews, uh, for that purpose. And so, we note that Dan is missing. I want you to turn quickly with me to Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to give you my thoughts. I'm not going to preach this as authoritative because I don't think... Based on what the Bible says, I can quite do that. I'm going to give you some thoughts I have that I believe will just will go as far as we can be consistent with what the Bible says and what we can gather out of it. Genesis chapter 30. Uh, Genesis chapter 30 tells us of Dan's birth. I think it's very un unique and interesting how Dan was born. Somebody tell me what you know. Give me one characteristic you know about Jacob's wife named Rachel. First thing that comes to your mind, Rachel. Thank you, Case. <laughs> Images, he says. Any other thoughts about Rachel? Prettier than her sister. She wasn't cross-eyed like Leah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. When Jacob died, he was not buried with Rachel. He was buried with Leah. He was buried with his wife, not another wife or a concubine. What we do know about Rachel, she was an idolatress. She stole her daddy's idols and took them with her. She had a false view of God. Now, I want you to notice something. When she couldn't have children, she conjured up this idea, and I think she must have got it from great-grandma Sarah. <laughs> you know what? If I can't have a baby, I'll give my handmaid, and she can have a baby, and it'll be mine. We can play tricks and try to do things for God in our own cleverness and say God did it, but that doesn't mean God did. Just like Hophni and Phinehas went into battle and swore up and down God had moved, but he hadn't. You with me? Nothing new under the sun. Man tries to work up God. No, God needs to work in us. We need to cooperate with him. And so Rachel got ahead of the Lord. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 30, this is concerning the birth of Dan. And she said, Behold my maid Billa, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. And she gave him Billa, her handmaid the wife, and Jacob went in unto her, and Billa conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said... God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son. Therefore called she his name Dan. Dan means to judge. You know what she's saying? God looked on my problems, heard my prayer, answered it and did a miracle and gave me this baby named Dan. Does this cause confusion anybody? She seems to be wanting to give God glory and credit. But how many of us would call what she did a miracle? Was it a work of God or a work of the flesh? Now, we won't, turn, we won't read it for time's sake. Genesis 49, when Jacob is prophesying concerning his sons, anybody remember what Dan is likened to? Judah's likened to a lion. Dan is likened to a snake. My theory is this. This is my thoughts based on what we know about Dan. He was birthed and his name was given him and it, it was deceitful. Rachel's title for her son was deceitful. He was not a miracle from God, no more than Ishmael was a miracle from God. 
Dan was not what he was said to be. He was said to be a blessing and a miracle from God when he was nothing more than the conniving work of the flesh. And it seems to me if you, you gather nothing else, and that doesn't mean Dan... I'm not telling you Dan was lost, but what we can learn about him is Rachel was an idolatress. She lied. She, she had a God of her own making. She conjured up something and said, this is what God did. No, Rachel, God didn't do it. You did. Then her, Dan's father says, you're a serpent to bite the heels. Who do we know that's a serpent in the Bible? Satan. And so it's no wonder Dan's missing in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation 14 in, the, in so much that you know who gets to decide who the 12 tribes are going to be? There's a point where God said, we're going to pull out Levi because he's going to serve as the priestly tribe. And instead of recognizing Joseph as one, we'll recognize both of his sons, one in place of Levi and one in place of Joseph. So for all of the period of the law, you have the 12 tribes, you have Levi set aside uniquely to serve God in the tabernacle. So they're not going to inherit the land. So when it came to who God recognized for inheriting the land, God recognized Dan, but when we get all the way to the end of the book, it's as though God says, but I don't forget anything. I don't forget anything. There are some judgments we'll not see handed out and justice served until the end of time because God has every detail. And if we'll pay attention to his word, it is as though Rachel says, God judged me and answered my prayer. When I read Revelation 7, you know what I hear God saying? No, I didn't. That was you, not me. Dan's not there. That's the best I can do for you. But I know this, the attribute that it brings out about God is true and faithful. He is true. By the way, you don't have uh, uh, Ephraim mentioned in those 12 tribes. You have Joseph mentioned instead of Ephraim, and you have Manasseh. But then you have Levi included back. But what you do not have is Dan, the one likened to a serpent. I, in my opinion, I think of him like I think of Judas and the Apostles. On the day of resurrection, there were only 11 apostles until God chose Saul of Tarsus later to be Paul. There was 11 for a period of time. You know what that tells me? When it's all said and done, God will keep his word and he'll do it his way. He said there'll be 12 apostles and he said there'll be 12 tribes. When it's all said and done, if that one is not what he wanted it to be, what it reveals to us is God will not be overthrown by the wickedness of man or the devil. He'll win when it's done. Justice will prevail because God is a just God. Man's not going to outsmart God and Satan's not going to overthrow God. God is wise and true and he will honor his word and honor his name and lies and deceit and every secret thing that every man's ever done is all going to come out in the judgment. And I see that in that Dan is missing from those 12 tribes. I think it's very interesting we study his origin and then when we study his end, you know what, we may deceive people around us but we'll never, ever, ever fool God. Amen? And so let's close with Romans chapter 11. Because these 12 tribes here are mentioned, we need to be reminded that much, that really the tribulation period is about God keeping his promises to Israel. The emphasis in the tribulation is not on the church or churches. The emphasis is on the nation of Israel, the restoration of that nation. There are people that would vehemently disagree with that, sometimes because their hearts are so bent in hatred toward Jewish people. And while I fervently believe that the Jews today are they are in an unbelieving state, their, their Judaism is a wicked religion, yet I believe God made certain promises to that nation that he is going to keep because he said so. Amen? Romans chapter 11, this is dealt with, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Who's he writing to here specifically? Gentile believers. 
Don't you be wise in your own conceits. Don't you think that God graft you into the promises that he made to Israel because you're better than the Jews? He did because you're humble enough to believe him. So don't be conceited. <laughs> that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And what you're finding in the book of Revelation is the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Meaning the Gentile world was given the gospel until the time, they've been given enough time to respond. And God says, okay, I'm going back to dealing with Israel now. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God speaks of the nation that he would replace their stony heart with a new one. And I believe that can be applied to the individual, no, no doubt. But he said it to the nation of Israel that one day he would change their heart and give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, that they would, uh, he would put his, uh, his laws within them and so forth. And the tribulation period is about getting the nation of Israel to that point of receiving their true Messiah that they once rejected. And so we know that the nation today is in unbelief, yet there are Jews getting saved. But there'll come a day that the nation would be brought to repentance. The tribulation period is about that. So we find these 144,000 among the 12 tribes that are his select servants. He's got them sealed because they're his. He, God preserves his own. Amen? He preserves his own. Just like he preserved Noah through an ark, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of the day of redemption. These here, these 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. And so the first point we see, verses 1 through 8, the preservation of... Of his servants. Next week, God will pick up verse 9. We look at the praise of his saints. I hope this makes some sense. It's helpful to us tonight. Let's pray.